0: Hello, and welcome into the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes. On today's episode, something a little different. Today's story is Scourge by Jeff Grubb. It's another one of the approximately 25 Legends novels I had never read before starting this podcast. But the reason today's show is going to be a little different is because the book is not connected. To any other stories in Star Wars, in either the Legends timeline or in canon, and it's one of the very few Star Wars stories I've ever read that isn't connected to anything. Scourge is an adapted novelization of one of the adventures from the Star Wars role playing game. So, because Scourge isn't connected to anything else, today's summary and analysis will be a little shorter than normal. But that gives me more time to answer one of the listener questions, and also to talk a little about my plans for the future of this podcast. So, let's get to it. First, I got a message from Nate Merrill, and it's about lightsabers. Nate tweeted the show, saying, I would love to know the difference between legends and canon lightsaber colors, what they signify, and what colors are even possible. Well, thank you for the tweet, Nate. Lightsaber colors are an in-depth topic. The simple answer is that in Legends, your lightsaber color can be pretty much whatever you want, based on the type of gem you use. In canon, your lightsaber color is determined by how you and your kyber crystal attune together in the Force, except for the Mandalorian Darksaber. In canon, lightsabers can only be made using kyber crystals, also known as living crystals, because they're attuned to the Force. But in Legends, a Force user could use a kyber crystal or any other of dozens of types of crystals to build their lightsaber. Since this is a Legends show, I'll start there. In Legends, there are at least 70 different types of crystals and gems that are used to produce lightsaber blades and those crystals produced a rainbow of different colors. Mostly the eight primary colors in a myriad of different hues. Green, blue, yellow, orange, purple, magenta, gold, silver, bronze, white, aquamarine, even multicolor. Basically, whatever color you want, you can have in Legends. And as far as Legends goes, the lightsaber color doesn't really mean anything at least during the early days of Legends. In the books, comics, and video games produced in the later part of the Legends timeline, the time after the release of the prequel films and during the production of the Clone Wars television show, Legends started adopting what lightsaber colors meant in canon. But I'll talk about that in a moment. In Legends, red is the only lightsaber color that isn't produced naturally from a crystal. The Sith produced synthetic crystals, and it's only those synthetic crystals that can produce a red blade. Lightsaber colors have a more spiritual meaning in canon, and they're all produced from Force-sensitive kyber crystals. They mostly come in four colors, blue, green, yellow, and red, with a few hues in those four colors. Once a Force user finds a kyber crystal, they can attune the crystal using the Force, and the crystal will emit the color that most closely signifies where that Force user's abilities lie. Blue and green are the most common colors. Blue is the color of the Jedi Guardians. These are the protectors of the Jedi Order. They're brave and righteous. The Jedi that carry blue lightsabers are commonly known as the Defenders of the Order. Green is the color of the Jedi Consulars. These Force users take a more thoughtful, introspective view of the Force. Jedi that carry green lightsabers are typically scholars and ambassadors. Yellow is the color of the Jedi Sentinels, and you can kind of think of those as the marriage between the Guardians and the Consulars. Sentinels are pragmatists of the Jedi, and they often try to use practical knowledge in a situation before resorting to using the Force. Yellow is also the color of the lightsabers used by the Jedi Temple Guards. Red is the color used by the Sith and other dark side force users, and it can only be achieved by using the force to bend a kyber crystal to the user's will. Kyber crystals are naturally attuned to the light side of the force, so dark side users have to bombard the crystals with a tremendous amount of dark side force energy, causing the crystals to, quote, bleed, unquote, creating the red color. Now, there are a few other rare lightsaber colors in canon. Purple, white, and black. Purple is the color of a Jedi that is tread dangerously close to the dark side of the Force. Someone who is known as an intense fighter that's occasionally prone to anger. Mace Windu is, of course, the most famous wielder of a purple lightsaber. White lightsabers are almost exclusive to Ahsoka Tano, And she created her white lightsabers after defeating one of the Empire's Inquisitors, the Sixth Brother. Ahsoka took his twin blades, which were red, and through the Force, healed the kyber crystals from their suffering, creating the white blades. The final color in canon is black, which is exclusive to the Darksaber. But in researching the answers to this question, I could not find why the Darksaber's kyber crystal produces a black blade. Most likely just because it looks cool. So those are the in-story reasons for the different lightsaber colors, but I would be remiss if I didn't also include a few practical reasons. In George Lucas's original notes, lightsabers were just blue and red. Blue for the good guys, red for the bad guys. And we saw that in A New Hope and in The Empire Strikes Back. But when filming the scenes for The Return of the Jedi, on Jabba's sail barge, they found it was difficult to see Luke's blue blade against the blue sky. So Luke's lightsaber color was changed to green in post-production. Also during the scene on Endor, when Luke turns himself into Imperial custody, Lucas originally wanted the green lightsaber color to change to red when Vader ignites the blade. But he decided against it, thinking it would be too confusing for audiences to understand what exactly was going on. Of course, most people have heard the story that in the Attack of the Clones, during the Battle of the Geonosis Arena, Samuel L. Jackson asked George Lucas if he would make Mace Windu's lightsaber purple so it would be easier for Jackson to see himself when watching the movie. Finally, The Darksaber was originally just supposed to be a type of Vibroblade sword that the Mandalorians carried to fight Jedi. But according to Dave Filoni, Lucas decided that a Vibroblade wouldn't hold up against a lightsaber, and the Clone Wars writers' room decided to change it to a lightsaber using the same template they had already rendered. Lucas approved of the change, and told Filoni and the animators, just make it black. Now, as for my opinion on lightsaber colors... I completely understand the reason why, in canon, lightsabers are certain colors. I understand how it works narratively and thematically. And it does. It it, it absolutely does. It works. I just don't like it. Not so much the blue, green, and yellow sabers, but specifically the red sabers and Ahsoka's white sabers. Bleeding a crystal making it bend to the Force user's will, and then Ahsoka healing the red crystals just doesn't work for me. And we also saw some of that in Star Wars Visions last month, specifically in the Ninth Jedi, which seems to be one of the favorites from most of the people, me included. But the color-changing lightsabers were the one part of that story that I just did not like. Overall, I prefer how lightsaber colors are depicted in Legends more And I'm not just saying that because this is a legend show. In my opinion, if the Force user has a spiritual connection through the Force with their crystal, and if the crystals are living and attuned to the Force, I think it would just be simpler if dark side users would be attracted to crystals that are more attuned to the dark side of the Force. And those crystals would emit a red blade. But narratively, I understand why it's like that in canon. So... That's everything you ever wanted to know about lightsabers. Thanks again, Nate, for the message. Now, if you'd like to be a really cool person like Nate and contact the show, please feel free to send me a message. You can email me at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or send me a tweet at legendslounge1. Maybe I'll answer it on the show. Now, stay tuned to the end of the show where I'll go over the calendar for the rest of the year and the plans I have for the podcast for its second season. But for now, it's time for today's book, Scourge, by Jeff Grubb. Grab a drink, and let's head in to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. The story begins on the planet mach Te, New Jedi Knight, Toro Irana is sent to acquire the navigation coordinates through an area of the corporate sector called the Indrexu Spiral. It's a nebula that is almost impossible to go through. Starships need to detour around the Indrexu Spiral to fly in and out of the Tion Cluster. A navigational lane through the Indrexu Spiral would greatly cut down on the amount of time it takes to get in and out of the Tion Cluster increasing trade and commerce to the systems located inside. As Toro waits for his contact, he snaps, flying into a fit of rage in a high-rise restaurant. The Pantoran Jedi attacks several patrons and restaurant workers, killing six beings, including the nephew of a Caliph. Toro tries to escape the area by jumping through one of the windows of the restaurant. He falls 40 stories to his death in the street below the high-rise. Now, the government of Makim Te is outraged, and the Jedi Council on Yavin 4 sends Mander Zuma to investigate. Mander is one of the archivists at the Jedi Praxium on Yavin 4, and he's Toro's former master. Mander convinces the Makim Te authorities to allow him to see Toro's body, and he finds a crystalline purple substance in the corners of Toro's eyes and mouth. Mander suspects his former apprentice has been poisoned, but things take a turn when Mander meets Toro's sister, Reen, who's also investigating her brother's death. Reen recognizes the residue on her brother's lips. It's Tempest, a powerfully addictive narcotic that has become popular in the corporate sector. One of the side effects of the Tempest is it causes users to fly into fits of uncontrollable rage. When Mander asks Reen how she knows this, Reen admits to being a small-time smuggler in that area of space. Mander suspects someone gave the spice to Toro without his knowledge, but Reed tells the Jedi that her brother was an addict. He'd been using the spice for weeks. What they were looking at was not a poisoning, but an overdose. Reen suspects someone spiked her brother's drink with a much higher dose of Tempest than what he was used to. Mander believes Toro's death has to do with his mission to obtain the navigational route through the Indrexu Spiral, so he decides to try and finish the mission. Mander, Reen, and her partner, a Bothan named Eddie Bure, travel to Narshada to see Popara the Hut and ask about Toro's mission. Popara agrees to sell the navigational route to Mander, but he also wants to hire the three of them for a mission of his own. Papara's youngest offspring, Micah, went to the planet Indragod in the Indrexu Spiral on business. But a plague broke out on the planet, and now corporate sector authorities have quarantined it. No ships are allowed to enter or leave the system. Papara hires them to run the corporate sector blockade and bring his son home. Mander, Reen, and Eddie use the Indrexu Spiral navigational route to quickly arrive at Indragod but they're ambushed by a Rhodian ship, pirates, they think, laying wait for ships that don't know about the quarantine and that are stuck at the edge of the system. The Rhodians attack, and soon, the fighting attracts the attention of a corporate sector patrol ship. The commander, Angela Crin, runs off the Rhodians and rescues Mander and his comrades. Now, while they berth on the CSA patrol ship to effect repairs, Mander and Reen talk to Commander Kryn about the Tempest trade running through the corporate sector space, and the plague ravaging on Endregod. Kryn informs them that nobody seems to know where the spice originates from. Whoever's supplying it has hidden its origins through a series of dead drops, fake requisitions, cargo haulers, and decoys. But the plague on Endregod seems to have started when the Tempest arrived. Offworlders smuggling Tempest, must have brought the plague to the planet. A few days later, after Rean and Eddie finish fixing their ship, Kryn allows them to leave, provided they exit the system, but of course they don't, faking like they're jumping to hyperspace and then running the blockade to the surface of Endregod. Mander and Reen search for Micah the Hutt in the planet's capital, and find him and his entourage just outside the city. Mander tells Micah that he was sent by Popara to bring the younger hut home to Narshida. He also asks Micah if he knows anything about the plague on Endregod or the Tempest. While they talk, the Rhodian pirates attack. Mander, Reen, and Micah's bodyguards fight the Rhodians off, but during the fighting, Mander sees Micah use the force to push back one of the attackers. When he asks the hut about it, Micah admits that he's always been different but it wasn't for years before he realized he was Force-sensitive. Unfortunately, Mander consents that while Micah does have the Force, he's not strong enough to ever be trained as a Jedi. Micah says he never wanted to be one, and he doesn't want the stigma of being a Force-user to hang over his head with the rest of the Hutt clans. Micah asks Mander to keep the Hut's Force-sensitivities a secret, and the Jedi Archivist agrees. Mander convinces Commander Kryn to allow him to take Mica back to Nar Shaddai, but only after they're cleared of infection. Kryn orders the testing on the group and finds they are clean, but she shows them what the plague looks like on a molecular level, and the Tempest Spice. Interesting, says Eddie. There's a small similarity between the two in their molecular makeups. That's correct, says Kryn. It appears to be radiation contamination from a white dwarf star. She says the CSA is searching the corporate sector, but unfortunately there are hundreds of thousands of white dwarf systems to search. Now once back on Nar Shadda, the group is attacked while traveling to Papar's palace. Nobody is hurt except for the droid translator that met the group when they landed. Being a hut is dangerous. But Micah suspects the assassination attempt came from his older brother Zonos. Zonos is Pupara's heir, but the other huts know he's not as intelligent as his little hut brother. Reen and Eddie are suspicious, however. Something about the attack doesn't seem right. The sniper missed a hut with his first shot, but was able to fire a successful headshot at a three PO droid with his second. It smells fishy. Regardless, they continue to Papara's palace and reunite Micah with his father. Papara is elated and offers a reward to Mander and the group, but while he's speaking, Papara begins to grow, enlarging like he's filling with air. Papara explodes to the horror of everyone in the throne room. Zonos orders Mander, Reen, and Eddie to be arrested. Mander and Eddie escape, but Reen is captured. As Mander and Eddie hide out in the streets of Nar Shaddai, he's contacted by Commander Kryn. The group meets in secret with Micah to discuss who killed Papara. Micah says it has to be his older brother. Zonos had to be the one that tried to kill Micah. The Little hut says that his older brother has always been paranoid that Papara would bypass Zonos and name the more intelligent Micah as their father's heir. The group develops a plan to break out Rene, Mander flies a hovercar through the bay window of the palace throne room. Eddie, Kryn, and a small group of CSA troops distract Zonos's guards while Mander goes after the hut. He finds Zonos holding Reen as a human shield, but Mander surprises everyone, pulling a blaster and shooting Reen with a stun blast. Zonos is shocked, and Mander takes advantage of the distraction, stabbing the hut through the heart with his lightsaber. After the battle, Micah is named the heir to Papara's empire. Later, on Commander Kryn's patrol ship, Mander, Reen, and Eddie prepare to go their separate ways. But they still want to know where the Tempest spice is coming from to try and shut down its distribution. On that front, Kryn has some good news. The radiation contamination they found in the Tempest comes from a specific white dwarf star, one in the Varl system, the ancient homeworld of the Huts. Varl was abandoned centuries ago when the system's binary stars went supernova. The larger of the two stars collapsed into a black hole, while the smaller one shrank to a white dwarf. Before the disaster, the Huts fled Varl and settled on the swampy planet now Hutta and its moon Narshida. Varl is where someone must be producing the Tempest. Mander, Reen, Eddie, and Kryn head to Varl in Reen's ship. They find an abandoned world, ravaged from when the binary stars went supernova. But in a crater, they see something. A cargo ship turned factory, run by droids. The group investigates, and on the bridge of the ship, Mander finds Micah. It was the young hut behind everything. Micah created the Tempest Spice to begin his personal fortune. When Toro, Mander's apprentice, began to investigate the Tempest, Micah had him overdosed, leading to Toro's death. Micah then killed his father and framed his brother for Papara's murder. Micah attacks Mander. The two battle while Reen and Eddie sabotage the rest of the factory, the book ends with the factory ship taking flight, but it's too damaged to reach escape velocity. Mander, Reen, Eddie, and Commander Crin escape on Reen's ship, while Micah is trapped on the factory ship as it plummets to the surface of Varl, exploding. Time for a break. When we return, I'll talk a little more about Scourge, and I'll go over what I've got planned for the podcast going forward. I'm Aaron Motes. You're listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Star Wars Legends Lounge, where we celebrate the books from Star Wars Legends. But let me take a moment and recommend a book from Star Wars Canon. Lost Stars tells the story of star-crossed lovers Thane Kyrell and Sienna Ree childhood friends who escape their backwater world for the Imperial Academy on Coruscant. Soon, the two clash over the Empire's actions, and one joins the rebellion. See the major events of the Galactic Civil War as they rise through the ranks while maintaining a clandestine love affair. It's a story of love, conflict, friendship, and heartbreak. That's Lost Stars by Claudia Gray. Welcome back to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes, and today I'm talking about the book Scourge by Jeff Grubb, a story based off of one of the adventures in the Star Wars role-playing game. First things first, this book is unnecessary to read. It's not poorly written, it's not a bad book, but as I said at the beginning of the show, it is not related to anything else in the Star Wars universe. You know, even when people talk about standalone novels, those standalone novels still have some of the characters, some of the places that we're used to in Star Wars, and they'll talk about some of the events that happen. This book has none of those. Other than it talks about the moon of Yavin Four and the Jedi Praxium that Luke Skywalker set up there. However, Mander doesn't even mention Luke Skywalker. He talks about his master's master. The only character in the entire book that is mentioned that I noticed that I can remember being mentioned any other place is Jedi Master Tion. Mander mentions her once in the entire book. Other than that, it's a completely standalone story. I had no idea when I went to read this that it was based off of one of the adventures from the Star Wars role-playing game. I actually think that's kind of cool. I like the fact that it's something different. I've never played the Star Wars role-playing game. I've never really played any role-playing game. I have played Dungeons & Dragons twice. I played it once in college for two sessions. And I played it once earlier this year, actually, for two sessions. That's it. I don't have any experience at all with the Star Wars role-playing game. But I appreciate the fact that the author of this book, Jeff Grubb, did something different. When researching this book, after I finished reading it, I found that Grubb actually helped write that adventure in the role-playing game. That adventure was called Tempest Fuse, and it was co-written by Grubb and another author, Owen Casey Stevens. Now, Tempest Feud was published back in... 2002, and it wasn't until 2012 that Grub adapted that adventure for this game, Scourge. Anyway, the book is well written, but there was one thing that did not work for me. When there is a mystery in a story, whether it's a book or a television show or a movie or whatever, when there is a mystery that I am able to figure out really early, the story overall falls flat for me because I'm just waiting for the reveal. And that's what happens here in Scourge. I was able to figure out who the mysterious big bad was within the first 50 pages of the book. It was pretty obvious in my mind that Micah the Hutt was the one behind everything. So while reading the rest of the book, I kept noticing little things that I was questioning as to why the characters weren't noticing these things. And when something like that happens, for me, it knocks a story down a few pegs. However, I'm not telling anyone that they should not read this book. I'm simply saying it's not necessary. In the different tiers of Star Wars stories, This is on that tier of it's not necessary. It's good, you just don't have to read it in order to get the entire story. Now, as to whether or not anything in this book will be canon, I can pretty safely say nothing will. Like I said, it doesn't really relate to any other aspect of the Star Wars universe. I'm guessing they could use some of the characters. They could talk about a type of spice manufactured that is way more dangerous and addictive than most of the spice in the Star Wars universe. They could even call it Tempest. They could have Mandar Zuma. They could have Toro and his sister, Reen. They could have any of these. Micah the Hutt, Popara the Hutt, Zonas the Hutt. Any of those characters can be freely used because this is the only thing they're in within the Star Wars universe, and it doesn't relate to anything else. So, as I said, the analysis of this book was going to be pretty quick because there's really not much to say. It's well written. It's interesting, but it's just not necessary to read. So, let me go on to my final topic. I sent out messages over the last two weeks saying that I would finalize the schedule for the remainder of the year those of you that follow Star Wars Legends Lounge on Twitter, at Legends Lounge 1, will know that the pinned tweet for quite some time has been the schedule, which runs through today, October 8th. So, I'm going to go over the last few episodes of the first season, and then I'm going to tell you what is going to be happening at the beginning of the second season. But first, I do want to go over a few things about the podcast as a whole. I started doing this podcast simply to talk about the books from Star Wars Legends, because I've been reading these books since I was 14 years old, 1992. Even though these books are weird, particularly the ones early on, they don't really jive with the overall story of Star Wars, particularly as I said, particularly the ones that were published before the release of the prequel films. I love these stories. Yes, some of them are weird. Some of them are off the wall. Some of them aren't very good. I, I understand that. But a lot of these stories are ones that remind me of the original Star Wars, A New Hope. A lot of these are simply fun adventure stories with a message about good versus evil. But even though I've been reading these books for almost 30 years now, I've never really found people to talk about them with. So during the pandemic, I was bored. I just decided, you know what? I'm just going to talk to everybody from behind this microphone. So I decided to create a show where I could just simply recap the books and give you my opinions on them. Not that they are good or bad, but what parts of the book work for me? What parts of a book don't work for me? Maybe this podcast would entice some people to pick up one of these books. So that was the genesis of the podcast, and then I knew I wanted it to be about a half an hour, roughly thirty to thirty-five minutes per episode. The reason, because of my commute to work, it takes me between twelve and fifteen minutes to get to work, and twelve and f- twelve to fifteen minutes to come back home, depending on traffic. And I wanted to create a show where. I could listen to it going to work in the morning, stopping at the midway point, and then on my drive home, picking back up, finishing the episode by the time I got home. None of that is going to change in the future. However, I would like to occasionally get a second voice on some of these episodes from people who have read some of these books. And we can have a short discussion about what we each liked or did not like about a certain book. I don't know how that's going to work yet. It's not going to be before the end of this first season. I'm hoping to start it sometime in the second season of this show. But I don't know yet how that's going to work. But that's my plan. So, hopefully that sounds interesting to everybody. Because, personally... I find shows more interesting where there are different voices discussing a topic. And it's not just one person monologuing the entire time. Not to say that I don't think my show, this show, is interesting. I just find shows with other voices and other opinions a little more interesting. And one last thing. One of the other reasons I decided to start doing this show... Was to give me a reason to finally read the books from Legends that I own, but I have never read. When I started the show, I had about 25 that I never read. And one of the reasons I'm doing this show is to basically force myself to read those last 25. So I can complete my reading of the Legends Timeline. That's not going to change going forward. I'm going to intersperse books that I have never read in the schedule. However, I have gotten enough messages from the listeners that they would like to hear some of the more popular Legends titles more often than what I've been putting on. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to make it a mixture. I'm going to do... Some popular titles. I'm going to do. Some less popular titles. And I'm going to intersperse. Some of the books that I have never read. So let's look at the schedule going forward. The show is going to stay. Every two weeks. The next episode. Is going to be October 22nd. And it's going to be a book that I haven't read. The Clone Wars. Wild Space. Up next in November. On the 12th, I'm going to talk about Dark Lord, The Rise of Darth Vader. And on the 26th, Shadow Games. Now, the last two episodes of this first season, in December, are going to be some pretty big ones. Some pretty important ones. On the 10th, Shadows of the Empire. Those of you that were around in 1996, remember the multimedia campaign... Around Shadows of the Empire. Video game. Comics. A novel. Dash Rendar was huge. In the Legends timeline. In 1996. So. I'm going to knock out. Shadows of the Empire. December 10th. And then finish the season. December 24th. Christmas Eve. With the original sequel. To A New Hope. Splinter of the Mind's Eye. Infamous in the Legends timeline. For those of you that like weird Star Wars, I'm one of them. Splinter of the Mind's Eye is weird. So, that wraps up the first season. Then, when I come back in January to start Season 2, I thought, what better way to finally begin the original Zahn trilogy than to begin a season? January 7th, January 21st, February 2nd, I'm going to go over what many of you have been asking for, the Heir to the Empire trilogy. Heir to the Empire, Dark Force Rising, The Last Command. Hopefully that schedule intrigues everybody. And as I said, I would like to get some additional voices on the show in Season 2. And maybe we'll start that with the Air of the Empire trilogy. As for this episode, it's time to wrap up. Next time on the Star Wars Legends Lounge, I'll be talking about The Clone Wars Wild Space by Karen Miller. Until then, if you'd like to get in contact with me, please email the show at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or send me a tweet at Legends Lounge one ask me a question, or just send me a message. I'd love to interact with you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Star Wars Legends Lounge. I'm Aaron Motes. Remember, there's always a bit of truth in Legends.